Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. On the show this week, UK lending and confusion over the Project Merlin targets. What's interesting for me is why the banks haven't spoken up sooner and said, well, look, this is the actual number we signed up to. They've been regularly coming out and saying the government's trying to hold us to account on this larger number when our argument is that there hasn't been the sufficient demand to meet that. And actually, we are doing what we said realistically we could do. Pay, a new FT research shows that global changes in bankers' bonuses are coming through. We started this survey in sort of a bizarre year. Now we've come to 2010, and the interesting thing that we've seen this year is bank pay has risen quite significantly, but 2010 for several banks was actually less profitable than 2009. And we end the show with investor attitudes to banks, why it's unfashionable to like bank stocks. I think most investors that I've spoken to are poised to put money in for the recovery. It's a Mm. question of when it comes through. Joining me in the studio today is Megan Murphy, Charlene Goff and our investment correspondent Kate Burgess, debuting on the show today. First of all, UK lending. Let's start the week with a look at what's going on in terms of the Project Merlin targets. We had a story this morning, Charlene, that the banks are actually on target to hit the real targets that have been set under the Project Merlin peace deal between the banks and the government, although those numbers have been kept secret until now. What's behind all this? But I think we've been trying to get to the bottom of this story for some time, ever since the Merlin peace deal was struck a few months ago. And basically what it comes down to is there were two sets of lending targets agreed between the banks and the government. The first set were what banks feasibly thought they could lend. They were known as the sort of stretch targets. Yeah, that's because, I mean, it's a strange term, but it's because I think originally the banks suggested certain targets that they thought they could meet. And the government said, no, those aren't high enough. They said, well, at a stretch, we could maybe do this. Exactly. So we have those numbers. But then the government said, well, actually, we want to push you as far as we can. So we're going to add a buffer on top of those numbers. And this will be published as a lending capacity. And basically, that meant that the banks would free up that money for the year, and they were happy and willing to lend it if demand was there to meet it. So they were kind of sceptical that that would ever happen. Exactly. Banks have always been very clear that they think the actual number that was published, which is 190 billion total loans to businesses this year, and of that, 76 billion is due to go to small and medium-sized enterprises. Now, all along, banks have been saying, look, we would love to do that if we could, but that is very dependent on demand. And honestly, we don't think demand will be there to meet that. But what's happened since that deal was struck is that suddenly... That has become the kind of concrete number that has been used by the Treasury, used by Vince Cable, used widely in government, even by David Cameron, as the target. And that's kind of morphed into the target 
you know, conveniently forgetting the actual targets that sort of lie beneath it. And this has been a source of frustration for the banks because they're saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, we didn't say that we thought we could meet this. And indeed, they failed to meet it in the first quarter of the year. The first quarter, particularly on SMEs, is the area where it's most contentious. They lent 17 billion, the so-called capacity target, which is the publicised one that ministers are holding them to account on, was 19 billion. So they fell well short of that. But actually, what we discovered was that 17 billion was absolutely the number that was set in the, in the real real targets. And actually, interestingly, the reason this story all came about was because a government minister used that number in a parliamentary response, a written parliamentary response last week. I think it's rather thrown the government that this, these numbers are now out there. The total number for SME lending for the year is uh, 69 billion, and for all corporate lending is 168. So quite a long way, but 10 yeah. to 12 percent below the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what's target. interesting for me is why the banks haven't sort of spoken up sooner and said, well, look, this is the actual number we signed up to. You know, they've been regularly coming out and saying, you know, the government's trying to hold us to account on this larger number when, you know, our argument is that there hasn't been the sufficient demand to meet that. And actually, we are doing what we said realistically we, we could do. But for some reason, you know, the banks haven't put that message out there. I think there's probably two reasons for it. One is the kind of continued tension between the banks and government and, and kind of recognition by the banks that they, they can't really afford to plead their own case because they're still, you know, figures of hatred generally yeah, in the country. Exactly. And I also think that the banks, we're going to give it some time. I think probably what's happened is the government thought, well, look, we'll take a really tough line in the first quarter. Mm. You know, we can say the banks have fallen short. We'll try and just, you know, come down on them hard, push them into lending more and see what happens over the year. But yeah, you know, I the- think the other point is, though, that the banks are not all in the same position. I think as far as we can work out, three of the banks, Santander, Lloyds and HSBC, are doing relatively close, if not beating, the the higher capacity numbers. And therefore, it's not in their interest to make a big deal of this. The others are maybe not doing quite as well, but equally, they don't want to be seen to be squealing. And then just one final point is how this will all play out over the year and what we'll end up with because if the Treasury are going to stick to this line that it, you know, they want the lending capacity met and all their rhetoric recently has been, you know, that we could impose new taxes exactly. or, you know, there was even calls for Stephen Hester, the chief executive of RBS, to resign. But, you know, when it actually comes down to it, like we've been here before, the banks fall short, the government realise they've actually got no power to do anything. No, it, it, if they carry on on the current trajectory, it looks like by the end of the year there'll be a, an unholy mess. Let's move on to our, our second topic and pay. Now, Megan, you've been doing lots of number crunching over recent weeks. This is the annual pay survey that we... Second you, annual yes, pay survey. Yes, you uh, <laughs> lead for us. What have you found out? Well, this year's survey has been interesting. When the FT embarked on this project in 2010, we were coming off a year that was anomalous for several reasons. It was, you know, the second year after the crisis bank earnings had returned to bumper levels on the back of companies looking to raise new capital in the market. We had very high trading volume. So we saw some banks that had emerged more strongly from the crisis posting huge profits. This is for the 2009 this year from, for which from last year. So, bonuses were paid. But then yeah. on the flip side, we had bank chiefs in response to public and political fear over pay taking zero bonuses. We had all the leading bank chiefs in the UK either decline to accept or donate their bonuses to charity. We had several high-profile figures in the U.S., such as Lloyd Blankfein and, and Jamie Dimon, refused yeah. to take their bonuses. So yeah. we started this survey in sort of a bizarre year. Now we've come to 2010, and the interesting thing that we've seen this year is 
bank pay has risen quite significantly, but 2010 for several banks was actually less profitable than 2009. So it's very difficult, again, to draw any broad conclusions except for the one that 2010 may, in fact, be setting a benchmark in a more regulated environment. You know, bankers consistently tell me that, look, we're never going to see the sort of 70 million that Mr. Blankfein, the head of Goldman Sachs, took home before the crisis, the 72 million that Dick Fold, the vilified former head of Claps U.S. Investment Bank, Lehman Brothers, took home. But that we are seeing pay leveling out between perhaps, you know, 10 and 20 million every year, that that could be actually the figure that represents a new norm. Kate, what do investors have to say about the new norm in terms of pay? Is it something that they've been very involved with setting? I think that pay is always an itchy subject for investors. And I think the guys who've been around for a long time will have said, we've seen all this before and we'll see it happen again. I think that you know the main concern of any invest- investor or major concern is that the performance targets are set appropriately, that they're long-term, and I think that's what the regulators and everybody else is looking for. So to, I don't think they've been that active, actually. Interesting that we've seen, I mean, a few anecdotal examples of kind of stuck in my mind with HSBC kind of coming up with a, you know, that longer-term view, putting uh, performance targets over five years rather than three. Is that something that is likely to catch on? It was interesting with HSBC because in spite of putting in these new metrics, there was, I think, near record objection to their remuneration yeah. report yes. this year. Partly because they're serial offenders. And, <clears throat> Absolutely. And I think that the feeling is that maybe this time they've got it right. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think the flip side, of course, is, and there's been a lot of sort of academic research on this topic, but whether longer deferrals actually change risky behavior, because there's many academics who argue that actually, if you defer payments over a longer period of time, bankers increasingly discount the amount they're taking home, and therefore it gives them more of an incentive to actually shop around to other banks to sort of move places where they can more quickly liquidate, realize, for lack of a better word, their longer-term payouts. And so there's some who argue that it actually increases risky behavior because people want to get that short-term payment as, as high as possible. So I think that we've, we're seeing so many changes coming in at so many different levels from different regulators globally. We really haven't seen it all play through yet. Yeah, I and I think banks are tinkering with with different systems to see what works best. I think that we are starting to see perhaps some consensus, and I think that will be reflected in tomorrow's survey, so please get the paper, but um, that we are seeing perhaps some bunching around more normalized levels of pay. And I think one thing just to cap on that is that investors are interested in board pay. It's very difficult for them to see below board pay, so they would have to rely upon the board pay to set the tone for the rest of the bank. Despite politicians' constant urging on investors yes, to uh, get involved with bonuses for um, you know the next I don't know, yeah. few hundred people down. That brings us on rather neatly to our final topic for today, which is the broader investor attitudes that we're seeing towards banks. It seems particularly unfashionable at the moment to, to like bank stocks. And I suppose, well, just looking at the UK banks, that's probably no surprise given their share price performance this year so far. But do you think we're likely to see that changing? Certainly, investors seem to be engaged in the UK, again, lobbying government to change their stance on on regulation. a group of investors who may may have invested a little too early for the recovery. There's a lot of evidence that actually UK investment investors were underweight in banks leading up to the crisis. And then some decided 
after the crisis that maybe they should put their toe in the water, took some quite big bets in Lloyd's and RBS and in Standard Life Fidelity, two names that spring to mind. And they've got a lot at stake, basically, yeah. if the regulatory environment turns out quite so... If it's draconian. And, if, yeah. uh, it, and I think most investors that I've spoken to are poised to put money in for the recovery. It's a mm. question of when it comes through. Well, again, in the UK, I suppose that there are several issues that are uncertain, particularly what the final Independent Commission on Banking exactly. report will say. In a sense, it's a game of chicken for investors in that they know that the government has to sell a lot of shares back to them at mm. some point. So it's a question of at what price mm. the government has to make it attractive to them in some degree. But is that the government's priority at the moment? Yeah. Investors such as Neil Woodford would say the government's priority is to rebuild the banking sector, build up their capital bases. Neil Woodford at Invesco's. What about the broader global picture of investors and, and bank stocks? Obviously, the whole swathe of regulation around the world is likely, in most people's eyes, to cut returns on equity down mm. from historic levels of you know pre-crisis 20% plus down to maybe 10 to 15% now. Is that a level? Or yeah, or lower in certain circumstances, yeah. Is that a level that is still appealing to investors or, or well, are we going to see... Great I mean, certainly banks, part of their lobbying against regulation is that if returns are too low, then we're never going to be able to attract capital into this sector and therefore better watch out. Well, I mean, bears like Neil Woodford would say that it's perfectly possible that you'll get returns, normalised returns of under... 10%. And mm. no, that isn't attractive. I think that it's interesting, though, when you put this into the context of different chief executives have different viewpoints on this. I mean, Patrick, when you and I speak to, say, Ozzy Grubel, the head of UBS, he would say that, yes, returns may go down to 12 to 15% annually, but yet that offers share. If you can cut out this sort of huge peaks and troughs of the pre-crisis era where, yeah. you know, 30% one year, five the next, if you can actually return to 12 to 15% stable year on year out on a less risky business model, that that investors will actually find that more attractive. And, yeah, which is and, the regulator's argument as well. Exactly. But so, the yeah. argument, uh, the counter argument to that is, and UBS is a good example, is that actually in an investment bank where you don't have the regulatory authority or indeed the the internal will to do a lot of proprietary trading and therefore arguably kind of make up for declines in client activity in, in week times and do more prop trading. The theory of that always is to kind of smooth out peaks and troughs and make it a smoother business. But I don't know, it just feels that that's maybe you are going to see more volatile returns. What I think is quite interesting in this whole debate as well is it what it means for the timing around the disposals of yeah. Lloyds and RBS. And if you're saying that, you know, the priority now is you know, setting the regulation, getting the sector back on its feet. I mean, we were thinking that that huge privatisation could start maybe beginning of next year. But would you think that's no, I think, optimistic. I think increasingly people are reckoning that if you're not going to see any form of real recovery through into the middle of next year, you're not going to see those stakes coming back in onto the market till the end of next year at the earliest. And then, of course, actually you're feeding into the next election fairly shortly after that. Yeah. We'll keep our eyes on that. But I think uh, in the short term, I guess it's the ICB final report in September that's going to dictate a lot of it. That's it for this week, sadly. My thanks to Megan, Charlene and Kate. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.